What's up, everybody? You are listening to No Coast Cinema here on WGN+. Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. I'm Tom Hush. I'm Akanda Cornelius. And... We are so glad to be back with you. I, I was thrown off a little bit by the Spanish. Yeah. I, I always forget that you studied Spanish in college. Yeah, I, I tried to bust out a little bit. I feel like the uh, accent could could use a little bit of work, so sure. I wanted to dust it off for a sec. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, back again for another week. We've got a great show lined up for you today. Uh, in our feature presentation segment a little bit later, we talked to Mari Ulrich, and uh, she is a fantastic writer and director and she's got a couple of uh a couple of works up on amazon prime one is called faster and that's a short and the other one is called the alley cat and they both deal with the same character who is a bike messenger but in two very different ways so we're very excited to talk to her a little bit later i think we're gonna we're gonna have a good time with that one yeah it's gonna be a good show and uh after that we're gonna talk a little bit about this newsweek article that we both found uh decrying i, I mean really in a very really, emphatic way yeah it's it's insane it's a little uh raving i think yeah a raving mad well, article a raving madman is is writing about the lack of classic movies on netflix and uh, i think we have a few thoughts on that so we'll we'll get to that a little bit later in our post credits but for right now it is time for news all right so <laughs> connor we're gonna start things off with a box office report why don't you start us off so uh we are recording this before all of the weekend uh, 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 numbers num- are in. Yeah. Statistics are in. Yeah, it's it's Saturday right now. You're going to be hearing this on Monday, or at least we're releasing this on Monday. So we don't have the Friday numbers in, but we do have our Thursday going into Friday, and we have the Friday like preview, the Friday expectation. So, and there are a few notable things that that uh, deserve to be uh, spoken about. It, which we talked uh, about at length last week, has officially toppled The Exorcist for the highest grossing horror film of all time, accumulating over $60 million. Do you know if that's adjusted for inflation? It's not adjusted for inflation yet, but, But, I mean, it is just gross, overall gross. Okay, yeah, yeah. I feel like in... In terms of inflation, The Exorcist must be, like, astronomically more successful. Mm -hmm. But I also think The Exorcist is a much better movie than the new It. That is... I will agree on that. Yeah. I will tip my hat to that. But that is to say this is an R-rated film about a clown that's killing kids. Yes. And it's done better than, you know, basically a classic. Yeah. That is... which is, Which is strange to really think about. Um... And we compare movies a lot. It's hard not to. You know, we when you're talking about anything, eventually you're going to compare and contrast. And while uh, it would be hard to say that quality-wise it is the same as The Exorcist, I, I think the response to it has been similar in terms of this event sort of feel to it. You know what I mean, Connor? Yeah. Well, I guess a large part of it is there's sort of a new Stephen King renaissance going on right now. Absolutely. You've got the Dark Tower. You've got a few new uh, miniseries of his coming up. Mm -hmm. A lot of that brought back by, um, as Kate Nibbs from The Ringer said last week, this renewed interest in the 80s and like Stranger Things really brought it back. And uh, I remember when it came out, a lot of people were, oh, yeah, oh, I love the love that Tim Curry one. Oh, it scared me so much as a kid. And that that's what brought them out to go see it. Now, in ter- like I said, in terms of quality, eh, definitely a rough debate there. But I don't know. I'm glad that uh, we've had a horror hit 
I'm yeah. glad that September is looking up in terms of um, box office numbers. August was the worst one in 20 years. Yep. That which is just is mind blowing to me. But you know what? There's been a complete dearth of really great movies, or at least movies that seem to hit the zeitgeist. And Stephen King's It appears to be that movie for September. So congratulations, Andy Musietti. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like that's the correct way to say his name. Like, I think it, there might be a shh. Is it Muschietti? I think it might be Muschietti. I'm going to go with Musietti. Musietti. And his, I believe his sister was like a producer, was one of the producers on it. I did see that in the opening. Yeah. The, the Musiettis are like a... They're a growing. Unit. Yeah. Yeah. The Musiettis are Muschietti's on the attack. The are on the rise. <laughs> All right, what's uh what's else is going on with the box office? So if you needed further proof that tired concepts still sell well, American Assassin is in second place at 14 million. I think that opened last weekend. Yeah. Yeah, and that's going into that's our Thursday number for that. Um really? Yep. I definitely can't believe that but i guess you know it, it it's <laughs> I, like a tom clancy-esque thing people are going to be into it i suppose yeah and michael keaton's pretty hot right now yeah i michael i mean i'm surprised that this is this was going to be his next project yeah i mean overall he did birdman which i loved i was really glad that he did birdman and then spider-man okay but like still going with this kind of superhero thing getting in on that marvel money oh yeah everybody wants a piece of the marvel money and then American Assassin, it's sort of, yeah, uh, why? Typical. And now I have not seen the movie, but as many of you know, I do work in a movie theater and I catch a little bit of uh, every every movie that we show. And American Assassin looks like the most cookie cutter, like bullshit <laughs> and is also incredibly violent. I was, I know it's rated R, yeah. but um, there is a scene where like, He's uh, Dylan O'Brien is sneaking into a house or something to shoot a terrorist, I presume, because, you know, America and uh, (laughs) that's what American assassins do. That's what American assassins do. They shoot terrorists Terrorists and are absolutely in no way terrorists themselves. Ah. (laughs) 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 It hurts. (laughs) But But he sneaks into this house and. he sneaks up on like there's this the terrorist and his you know gorgeous uh escort and she like sees him and the terrorist security detail tries to shoot dylan o'brien and just guns down this woman in cold blood like she's just screaming and then just like ar-15 to the face wow and i was like really disturbed i'm like i don't like this this really did not make me want to see the rest of this movie out of context especially oh yeah and there's another scene where a woman literally like takes a gun and shoots herself in the head really yeah she's just like i want to see my family and like there's this weird standoff between dylan o'brien and uh the dude who played gambit in x-men origins <laughs> taylor kitsch nice pull <laughs> yeah I, I i think taylor kitsch from friday night lights um riggins tim riggins from friday night lights <laughs> and he's like you know, they have this weird standoff. I have no context for it, so I'll admit to that. And then she's just like, I want to see my family again, and pulls a pistol and just blows her brains out on screen. Oh my God. For seemingly no reason, but I, I'm sure there's some sort of script justification. But anyway, the point being... Who directed this? this? I don't even know. I don't want to know. Was it a woman? 
Honestly, I can't imagine. Yeah. I, I mean, let's not rule it out. Let's not be that type of show. I'm sure a woman a, a woman could have easily directed it, but uh, we're going to go to the, the NoCo Cinema supercomputer here <laughs> because why not? Uh, yeah, directed by Michael Cuesta, who um, has done some directing for Six Feet Under, Dexter, Blue Bloods, and Homeland. So a I history want, of violence, as yeah. it were. I wonder what the choice is for that. It is interesting talking about these scenes out of context, not mm-hmm. really knowing the the greater narrative. but Because women getting killed on screen is kind of like par for the course, I guess. Yeah, I guess. But it's it's like, you, what was he thinking? What yeah, is the it didn't even, choice it, there? Yeah, it didn't even seem like there was some sort of narrative decision to do it. Like, they kill off that terrorist girlfriend just because, oh, she's in the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it sounds just like, oh, you know it would be really cold-blooded? Just killing somebody for no reason and then just introducing a character and then just... Pfft. Human debasement. Human debasement. Shout Excellent. out to... Alien vs. Predator Requiem. Shout out. <laughs> For ultimate human For debasement. ultimate human debasement. Uh, what's next on the list? What were we looking at Thursday? Um, so, sort of a departure from the uh, the previous two, a movie that's been extremely polarizing for audiences darren aronofsky's new film mother with uh jennifer lawrence exclamation point mother ex- mother mother I, yeah <laughs> okay yeah there you go <laughs> and uh it's at uh over seven million dollars which uh produced by paramount which is a little bit of a disappointment and we're going to talk a little bit more about that mm-hmm. why it's a disappointment later but uh it is in third place at the moment and it also has received a in certain circles coveted F yes. from uh, nationwide survey group CinemaScore. Yes. This has been uh, the story of the moment with Mother is that they received the coveted F from <laughs> CinemaScore. Now, it is very rare that a movie gets an F. How does somebody get an F on CinemaScore? So, for those of you who don't know what CinemaScore is, it is a survey basically that uh there are many teams usually about 35 to 45 teams that go out to some of the largest cities in america for an opening weekend of a movie and five cities are picked at random and you get one of these teams they go to these cities and they you know when you're walking out of the theater they give you a scorecard that you can opt in to take and you rate the film on a plus to f you say whether or not you're going to buy it you know, buy it or rent it on DVD or Blu-ray, and uh, you also give a reason why you came to see the movie, just so that they can get a sense of who's coming to see this film. And it looks like Mother was uh, a completely alienating film for most of the general public to the point where they would just not want to ever see it again no rentals they're just like i came to see this because the marketing made it look one way and it turned out to be something completely different which um is interesting i've seen mother connor has not seen mother i have not uh i definitely understand the cinema score of f like it's uh it is an incredibly polarizing film i have still not really decided how i ultimately feel about it I'm still brewing, you know, my thoughts. I'm probably going to see it again before I actually know how I feel about it. But I I just got to say I think it's worth a watch. Yeah. If nothing if for nothing just but like the conversation of trying to figure out how you feel about this film 
is the allegory too strong um i would suggest ignoring like do not listen to any interviews from darren aronofsky jennifer lawrence any of them yeah because they are like trying to justify this movie and that's a bad idea i wholeheartedly reject people trying to like tell you what a movie like mother is about because it all that really matters is what you feel about it so if you go and see mother and you hate it and you have valid reason for it like just accept that don't worry about what darren aronofsky has to tell you about the concept of mother just go see it and if you love it accept that and be like oh you know it it could be about this could be about that enjoy the process of figuring it out for yourself and i have not seen it and i haven't read any reviews by it but i have seen a lot of news about how you know obviously how difficult it has been for audiences to like deal with this movie and i do have to say being a i don't know fan of darren aronofsky (laughs) it does not surprise me in the least anybody that is familiar with his films like black swan or requiem for a dream this person seems to uh, make movies which are pie, which are made to make you feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. and elicit just a very challenging reaction from the people that watch his films. Yeah, that, and it, that's actually been his largest critique from a lot of people is that they think, they feel that the shock is for shock's sake. Yeah. Um there are some and I was uh, I was reading a recent bit in the New York Times where it's just, you know, readers reacting to mother because it is such a polarizing film. Um they were you know, just giving their thoughts on it and one of the most important ones was this guy was looking back in to Black Swan looking at Requiem for a Dream. He's just like Darren Aronofsky is just shock for shock stake. He doesn't he's not really saying anything with it. Now, I think that's up for debate, especially in some of his better films like Black Swan, like Pie, like The Wrestler. Um, oh, I, I think a that. lot of people forget that he did The Wrestler, and I think The Wrestler is probably the best movie he's made because it doesn't. Maybe it's because it doesn't have that same shock factor, or at least he he brings it back a little bit. But um. Many people who have seen Requiem for a Dream, that movie is legendary for its final, like, 10, 15 minutes. That, it's insane. I can't even watch that movie a lot. Like, oh, I can watch no. it once a year, maybe. It's It freaks me. It gets to me. And whether or not it's pretentious or pandering or schlocky, I don't know. I just kind of react to his movies on a visceral level, and maybe that's just the point. It's, uh... You know, maybe if you try to think too much about it, it does fall apart. But yeah. I will say Mother looks great in terms of its cinematography. It's shot on, like, six, uh, Super 16, so it's got this awesome, like, film grain to it. All the shots are really tight and claustrophobic. So, at the very least, it's an interesting film. Whether you like it or not, it's up to you. But it's an interesting film. And shout out, you know, a good job getting a cinema score of F. Yeah, maybe good work, Darren. I maybe feel it's like better you... that uh, we have more movies that are willing to push the envelope for better or for worse. Yeah, taking risks. Taking risks. Speaking um, of risks. Risks. Uh, this comes to us from uh, The Hollywood Reporter. Pamela Rolfe wrote an article about, uh, we're going to go global for a second, mm-hmm. wrote an article about a uh, recent move on behalf of the Spanish government to make it a little bit easier for Spanish people to go to the cinema. I love this. So um, we're talking Spanish movie ticket sales tax here. They're lo- they're lowering the movie ticket sales tax from 
21%, which was the highest in Europe, and they're lowering it a full 11% down to 10 which is a request that the film industry in Spain has been championing, championing for the last six years. And like I said, they had the highest ticket sales tax in Europe, and Spain has had a rough go in the last decade or so. Absolutely. They had a financial crisis in 2008, and it was difficult especially for the film industry because several other sectors saw a reduced tax rate, and the film industries only went up, and it just skyrocketed to be the, the highest in Europe. So... Uh, the government has sort of come forth and said, provided some justification for the move, uh, and now they're saying that they're forecasting a $7 million drop with this reduced rate, um, which, by the way, is going to drop ticket prices to $0.72, cents, which, if you're familiar... Is it, is it dropping it to $0.72, cents or is it dropping it $0.72? Cents? It's dropping the sales tax from, I believe it was 93 cents to 72, 72 cents. cents okay so the sales tax on the tickets is going to be there and that's going to come out to about a seven million dollar deficit for the government uh in terms of their previous profit mm -hmm. they were getting and uh they've also said that they inherited near bankrupt finances from the previous government and had to find funds where they could yeah i think um understandably the the increased tax on a leisure thing kind of makes sense from a political perspective um you know 2008 was a crazy year all across the globe and uh spain was hit super hard and keeping that um that tax there to increase to have you know even a, you know an extra seven million dollars or sorry is uh seven million euros I guess in the uh in the bank is good, but what a ridiculous sales tax. Twenty one percent. And we think our tickets are bad. Are, yeah, you know? exactly. At least the taxes are not massive on that. And um that's that's just fascinating that that's how they found the money was like in the movie industry. Yeah. Especially in America when we keep thinking like, oh, no one goes to the cinema anymore. Well, they manage, you know, in Spain, they managed to find a lot of extra money just off of people going to the cinema. Uh, so that's an interesting thing. And uh, you know what? They've got a film festival coming up in, in Spain. So um, I'm sure this is a good time to unveil unveil yeah. this uh, this new tax reduction. It probably feels like they're inaugurating it in a way mm -hmm. i love it now i want to move on to uh a story from inside hollywood concerning mr jj abrams mm. and the embattled paramount studio take it away connor so jj abrams uh if you're familiar with the man <laughs> who i'm sorry who yeah jj abrams i think he was the producer on like a cloverfield film or something yeah he may have um he invented lens flare Oh, that's yeah. what he did. Man, I love that lens flare. Yeah. I got to say, he invented the up. sun so that we could have lens flare. <laughs> Thanks, J.J. Abrams. So um, <laughs> so if you've been paying attention to uh, what's going on in the studio world today, you would know that Paramount Pictures could use a win. And we just talked at length a little bit about Mother, which is a Paramount film, and it's not doing as well as they had hoped. No, uh, far from it. Far <laughs> from it, my friends. Um, so the CEO of Paramount, Jim Giannopoulos, has taken over the company in April from the previous CEO and has not had the easiest go of running the show. Um, and J.J. Abrams is by far their 
shine their knight in shining armor yeah. in terms of director, writer, producers. Yeah, he's their wonderkin. He's really the one that they're depending on. And he signed a deal in 2006, which a lot of people are looking at this and they're saying it might be the last of its kind. It's He gets $10 million a year in overhead and development, and the they give him this every single year, and he isn't going to be able to work for Paramount. He hasn't made a film for them since 2013, uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah. And Abrams has now been brought on to film the 10th Star Wars film. So Ninth. Oh, the ninth Star Wars film. God damn it. <laughs> oh. All right, start the episode over. So J.J. Abrams has has this deal where he gets $10 million a year. From Paramount. From Paramount in overhead for production. Yeah. He doesn't keep that. That's just like. That's just what they give. That's what the base amount that they'll give him. Yeah. But he hasn't even made a movie for them since 2013. Yep. Jesus. And he won't until past 2019, which is when his contract ends up. Goes up. Yeah. Expired. They're they're not going to renew him. You don't think so? Well, I can't imagine they would. Like, I, I think it would be a dumb decision. Like, clearly, the House of Mouse has their grip on him. They're just like, if if J.J. Abrams, he got the chance to do The Force Awakens, and I figured he would just do that. I think there was mostly indication that he would just do that. But clearly, he's willing to just turn around and do whatever seems more uh i don't know prestigious that's fair i i like like, he hasn't done bad for paramount though no i mean he did he did the two star trek Trek. yeah two star trek super eight he was super eight was okay i think between the two star trek movies and super eight we they got about 267 million dollars out of that global box office Mm. which is not unsuccessful and then it's not unsuccessful also produced three mission impossibles he produced a third star trek film and two cloverfield films with another one okay so he's still he's still doing stuff his worth for paramount is over five billion dollars yeah in terms of global uh, box office since he yeah. started working for them in 2006 but i do feel the fear though that he would just turn around and be like well you know they're asking me to do another star wars spin-off film exactly wah, wah. looks yeah. like i'm not going to produce or write or direct anything for you for the next year like and how many times can that happen before they're just like screw this but yeah that deal is ridiculous if they do if they do renew his contract they gotta like change that up they either need to pin him down and be like, you need to make us some movies, man. Like, yeah. we're giving you ten million dollars a year, and over. I'm sure some of that is salary. Oh, absolutely. Like he's if he's he's on their payroll, like he should be doing. I'm sure they're getting him to do little things that we don't even know about. Hollywood's a weird place. Like, you know, Carrie Fisher was secretly a script doctor on so much stuff. People would just give her the script, and she'd doctor it. Like, you know, That's he could be doing a lot of stuff that we don't we would never hear about. Yeah, I mean, um, he's a bankable director, producer, and writer. I guess. Yeah. I've never been, like, the biggest fan of J.J. You can't deny he's bankable. He's bankable, but, like, I have I don't like to hear that J.J. Abrams basically gets to do whatever he wants. He's yeah. kind of up in that echelon of, like, Joss Whedon, like, untouchable nerd icons that I don't really like. I don't like when people reach that level. Um, and Like, they want to put him in the pantheon with Spielberg. Which, sure. Well, he sh- he sure as shit wishes he was Spielberg. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know if you saw Super 8, but that well, was he basically... He owes everything to... He owes everything to Spielberg. Oh, yeah. So, I guess... I don't know. He's... He... 
But I feel like the hardest position for everybody out of everybody involved in this, JJ Abrams got a pretty sweet deal. But CEO of Paramount, Jim oh, Jesus. I can't even I can't, imagine being him right now. No. Paramount is not doing well. Because you can't pull a power play where you just be like, no, JJ, here's $10 million, here's $50 million, and you make this movie. Like, that could be disastrous. Yeah, JJ would, could easily just be like, no, I don't give a shit. People will come see anything I make. Like, he's JJ Abrams, unfortunately. Yeah. And then if you decry JJ Abrams or Disney's choice to basically competitively poach the man um you're putting yourself against one of hollywood's biggest directors right now and then Mm -hmm. like disney the overlords of the american zeitgeist (laughs) yeah like that is that is a tricky position to be in like i like we said we would not want to be in uh the uh boardroom of paramount right now because especially with mother they really invested they were really hoping that was going to be, like, the talk about... It is one of the most talked about films of the year, but not for the best possible reason. Yeah, not we'll good s- on paper, that's for sure. No, no. We'll see what happens afterwards. But, um, JJ, good luck with Star Wars, man. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. You, I don't, don't, you don't need our luck. You don't need our luck. You've got millions and millions of dollars behind you. All right. Uh, We're going to be back in just a little bit. We've got our feature presentation segment talking to Mari Ulrich about her her work, her writing, her directing, and a short and a full-length feature film that she did concerning bike messengers. And uh, it's really great. We also talked to her a little bit about her time at the Venice Film Festival. She uh, went over to Venice tried to uh, experience the festival life over there in Venice and had a little bit of an interesting time. So we'll uh, we'll get into that with her in just a couple of minutes. You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. Plus. I'm Tom. I'm Connor. And we'll be back in just a bit. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. I'm Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And we are your hosts for this fine, fine podcast. Uh, Right now for our feature presentation segment, we are going to be talking to a Chicago-based writer and director, Mari Ulrich. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Hey, it's fantastic to be here. Um, she is fresh back from the Venice Film Festival, which is an honor that uh, I think Connor and I could only hope to achieve one day, just to kind of maybe be on the outskirts, hawking you know water bottles for a dollar, grabbing the chain link fence with our fingers and just sort of peering in through the <laughs> through the aluminum. I, I imagine it would be sort of an Oliver Twist situation, you know. Please, sir, can I have a short? Can I have some shorts? Can I have that some shorts? Way better than what I was going to say. <laughs> so, Mari, you, uh, is this your first time going to Venice? Yes. And and my film wasn't in it. I just went as an industry person to meet people. Excellent. Um, and just check it out. So, because I had such... Uh, um, I've been to Cannes a couple times, and it's a really fantastic place to meet people. So I thought, well, I ha- one of the films that I'm... Uh, have in development is set in Italy so I thought maybe I would meet an Italian producer or something. There you go. Or some people that have like coke production money or something. Um, 
So I'd never been before. I'd never been to Italy before at all. Don't speak a word of Italian and had never been to Venice. And I was completely overwhelmed by all of it. It I, was just. Yeah. I can only like, imagine like going into one amazing. of the. Yeah. One of the most amazing <laughs> cities in Europe in the world and going for one of these big film festivals. Now, you mentioned that yeah. you've been to Cannes. Yeah. And what were when you first walked into Venice, did you notice anything different? Uh, they have canals. That'll do it. That'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) No streets. Or the festival. I mean, they do have some, but um, the the I was staying on uh, uh, in an area called San Marco. I'm sorry, in San Stai, and um, the uh, festival is on another island called Delito, so you have to take a boat to get there. So you have to take you a ferry. Take multiple boats, oh my actually, God. to get there. Sounds magical. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty magical, but it was also, it's just so beautiful that I, I kind of, I think I short-circuited my brain a little bit because it's just like mansions and like decaying beauty and just beauty, 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 and like beautiful gondolas and beautiful taxis and beautiful people wearing smart clothes and just all this amazing beauty and i just sculptures and like iron fences and flower i don't know and then at night you get to go be a part of your industry take a boat and party and watch (laughs) other people's funny thing about that is um so it was kind of a comedy of errors uh for me this festival because for one thing i got there later than i meant to um i delayed my arrival just to be fashionably late. No, um, cool. I was shooting some. <laughs> I was shooting some footage in rural France with a friend, um, working on an experimental film about driving and roads and stuff. Okay. And um, so we were we encountered some issues, such as getting lost. <laughs> and uh, so I decided to like. It was to, it that experimental? Were you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're like, just go with it, man. Um, it's, that's an interesting story too, because like she put the name of the town castle wherever we were going in her gps but it picked like a hotel called rocamador and not the actual town village of rocamador so we drove and drove and drove and we ended up like oh hi it says we're here we're really 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 not here (laughs) (laughs) so where's uh, the film festival (laughs) (laughs) so i decided like well we're here and we're shooting this and we might as well take the time to try to get some actual footage so i put off my arrival in venice which was mm-hmm. highly anticipated <laughs> um by my one friend who was <laughs> who was gonna be there but um so i missed her completely and then i got to venice and the first day i went to pick up my accreditation it was like i was late like five minutes late and i couldn't get it so i went back the next day and it was like torrential rain torrential torrential rain and we were all everyone was just like huddled under this um temporary structure built just for the festival with where they have like a cafe and stuff and it was raining so hard that it started to like come in and form puddles and oh, oh god was it, it outdoors was like, uh no but it was i just got stuck outdoors and oh. i had to duck into this you know yeah closest okay. <laughs> whatever closest shelter they shelter. could provide. <laughs> yeah well it was no hurricane but it was kind of bad and then i don't know i could i could so then like i i I was finally like got my credential i'm ready to participate um i got and sorry it's tmi but i got like an unexpected period (laughs) when i was wearing my like light jeans um so i had to take care of that and then i had been using this lotion that was like i had bought in france because i have really dry skin on my legs and i was allergic to it which oh, I didn't know no. until after using it for like five days in a row. Oh. <laughs> my skin exploded. <laughs> and I was like trying to claw my skin off. And I was like, I can't 
focus on anything. I have to go to the whatchamacallit pharmacy. Yeah. Oh man, all of this. I know. And, what, and then what I'm a just festival. like just trying to get to the festival and then they gave me um uh antihistamine and then I finally go to see a movie, Marvin, which was spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um it's a French film and it Isabelle Huppert is in it and um I think it's the only film in competition that was directed by a woman. Um which is one of the reasons I wanted to see it. <laughs> I was falling asleep. <laughs> Cuz the antihistamine yeah. kicked in and I was like, uh the drowsiness. <laughs> yeah. God bless. Well, I mean, with the with this whole film festival, despite all of these, uh, you know, almost <laughs> Chaplin esque yeah. yeah, sort of problems, this tragic comedy. Um, what was what was the atmosphere of the festival like? It's very. It's kind of like a. It seemed like a mini can in a way. Like maybe it's. I think it's just because it doesn't have the market aspect, but it has the same. Like it's just really cool that the. Um, celebrities come up in their little boat on the mini canal and they land in front of the hotel and people are like throwing themselves against the fence trying to get autographs and stuff and it's just like so beautiful and um it's very cool very nice very nice yeah and you so you did get to see what was the film called marvin 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 and really the only one directed by a woman in competition. In competition. In competition. Yeah. Okay. There were other films directed by women that were that, that were, were playing, there. but not in competition. Okay. So. Well, I mean, do you do you think that that was? I mean, I find that a little surprising. Yeah. Only one in competition. Yeah. It's well, a, it's a thing, I guess. And yeah. They stand by their you know decision, but mm. I don't know. Of course we, they do. Yeah. Of course they do. <laughs> we're the Venice Film Festival. We know cinema. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or how the, how they say it in in Italian? It's cinema, cinema. <laughs> I think that's cinema. the best part about it. It's just cinema. There's something special. <laughs> yeah, little mic check. All right. So wh- I mean, despite would you would you go back again and hopefully For this time? Sure. And I think part of it too is like um, just trying to figure it out. It's hard to do. It just takes. I remember my first time at Cannes. I felt a little bit like the same, like a little bit overwhelmed by everything. And then you kind of figure out how to do stuff, and it takes less time. And you figure out how to take the water taxi (laughs) to get there on time and stuff like that. That was the other interesting thing is that I was going to go to a production bridge industry party, and I'm like, finally going to party. Put on a little short dress and spent some time on my makeup. And I go out to catch the water taxi, the Vaporetto, and the canal was closed. How do they close a, a canal? Historical regatta. Mm. Oh, well. which was fantastic! Mm. It was like I mean, I, and at that point, I just laughed and I was like, okay, okay. Well, I'm going to watch this regatta. <laughs> I'm going to watch the regatta and take some pictures, <laughs> and then I'll go have dinner and whatever. Well, <laughs> you just got to like go. You make with the it. best of it. <laughs> yeah, you make the best of. It. Couldn't you have told the the uh, whatever the guy to take some like side canals or something? Yeah, <laughs> I did. I did try to hitch a ride. With one of the just hop into another gondolas. one. They were like, "It's difficult. It's very difficult." I'm like, oh, "Okay, oh, we understand," but you know, I'm trying to rub elbows here, I'm trying know. to make so, this work. So, was the Venice Film Festival was this your first festival that you went to as you were invited as an industry figure? Uh, no, I went to Cannes this year just as an industry person okay as well. right. do you have to like so, I, do you have to like register and identify yeah. yourself as an industry person yeah and they they check they you know i don't know how closely but they scrutinize your credentials and make sure you're actually an industry person yeah and not just like you know random joe bob who wants to 
go to meet some go to yeah, camp. yeah yeah <laughs> or maybe i'll beat some celebrities or something all right would you be willing to vouch for us if yes. connor and i were just like <laughs> please i've been here before these guys are the real deal I promise. i'll show you the right <laughs> and please say it to. like that too <laughs> yes these guys are the real deal the give real me your, deal. your best 1940s new like yeah. you know news producer atlantic <laughs> mid-atlantic <laughs> mid-atlantic accent exactly well let's move on to the films that you have made uh connor sure, and i sure. were lucky enough to get to see uh two of your films one a short one a full uh full feature length uh both dealing with uh the same character the same central character and that's faster and the alley cat Uh, both films deal with a cyclist jasper jasper yes um and she is in chicago she's a bike messenger and uh, it kind of, both films deal with this situation of her being a bike messenger in two very different ways. So I want to ask first right off, where did the idea for Jasper as a character come from? I had that idea for a really long time, like even before I applied to Columbia for the MFA program. I sort of had that character kicking around in my head, although it became much more um, clear as I was working on my thesis film. Um, and I think it was because I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and we didn't really have bike messengers, especially back then. There just weren't any. And so um, I went to undergrad in Boston, Massachusetts, and there were bike messengers everywhere. And I was just like, whoa, they're so cool. Because <laughs> um, they were kind of like athletes, but punk rock. They were like, yeah. you know. And they're serving a function as well. They're serving a function. They're like very driven, like intense. No no business or uh no, no nonsense yeah. yeah yeah they're very driven they're doing their job they're obviously good at it or they wouldn't be able to do, get run over um or something or not be able to make a living and so i just <clears> found <throat> it really intriguing so i would like kind of like hang out at bike messenger bars and whatever now that's a thing is a bike messenger <laughs> yeah. bar have, yeah <laughs> how do i get into those bars do i need to have a fixie or no can you vouch for in. us <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these guys are not nerds <laughs> so it seems like you kind of get you introduce yourself to this culture of the bike messenger yeah. to flesh out the character yes and like i started researching blogs like written by bike messengers and um finding old zines and stuff um and just reading more about it and it kind of like cemented my idea of like okay yes they are super punk rock athletes um and then so then i just transplanted the story to chicago and and wrote you know i originally wanted to make a feature but you can't for your thesis film Mm -hmm. it's got to be under however many minutes um so i just i didn't want to make a piece of it or a trailer so i just rewrote the story to be a short and that's how i came up with faster now, Faster really is, um, it, it, the name really <laughs> communicates the speed of this film. Like, I remember uh, watching it just being um, struck by the breakneck feel of the film. You really communicate the um, the the feeling of being a bike messenger. Like, you are there with Jasper on this, on this journey, I suppose. Um, and you have some pretty incredible shots of mm-hmm. downtown Chicago. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. did you manage to do that? Like, were mm-hmm. you just had the resources doing your thesis through uh, that was through Columbia, correct? Through Columbia. Um, it's, I'm really glad that you said that because uh, we we wanted it to feel like you were kind of on the road with her. And um, a couple of things. One was um, I met 
So through the blogs, I found this one blog. Um, I think it was called Dispatch 101, written by a former dispatch bike messenger guy. Julio Saravia, if you're out there listening. Um, and I contacted him eventually, and I was, like, super shy about it. I was like, he's going to think I'm so stupid. He's going to hate my script. But I just was like, I want to make a film about bike messengers, and can you read it and tell me if it's, like, at all realistic? And so he read it, and he really liked it, and he met with me to talk about it, and he was like, let me introduce you to some people. So one of the people was Rene Kudal, who's a you know bike messenger for many years, and um, he came and worked on the film. Um, sometimes we had the camera mounted to him, to his chest for some of the shots. And then uh, so a lot of the other shots, he's, Renee is sort of like um, fielding traffic for Jenny Strubin, the lead actress. So he's out in front and a little bit to the left, kind of shielding her from traffic. And then she's riding so that we don't see Renee, but we can see um, Jenny. And then I'm behind driving a, my old sob <laughs> that I had. And the, the DP, Tony Santiago, is just, like, hanging out the window. Wow, that is some guerrilla filming. <laughs> yeah. yeah, seriously. It does blow my mind when I when I was watching that, just how, uh, how yeah, like, how quickly it went. And then just how you didn't really give the it – seemed, it seemed like the characters didn't have a lot of time to, like – take yeah. a breather you know yeah. they were just going it's all constantly. happening yeah it's just yeah. all happening i like to i'd like to refer to it as a as a brown paper bag movie because you're just like <laughs> <laughs> like where is this gonna go like you are really the investment is totally there um with cool. with um jasper you said played by uh lead actress jenny um did she already have biking experience just a little bit, but she actually, um, I sent her out to train with Renee, and um, so he took her to work with him for like half a day, and uh, it's it was so funny because she was like, I died, it was hor- I was like dying, and he's like, no, she did great, and she was like, <laughs> I was toast by like 10 a.m. Oh my gosh. But, it, <laughs> but it, so he taught her some like tricks and maneuvers and how to dismount gracefully and stuff mm-hmm. like that yeah it seems for someone who really has no frame of reference for the yeah. for the bike messenger world i was convinced as far as i was concerned this is how uh this is how bike messengers operate well we've cool. both ridden bikes around chicago yeah. and we know yeah. it's a harrowing experience no Can matter be. what you know yep. speak for yourselves i refuse to get on a bike okay I, really? I have, oh yeah in chicago oh it it gives me the willies and maybe that's what worked for me so what yeah hey. sure. like, i was just I feel like vulnerable yeah <laughs> exactly. Um, with the story itself, there's this kind of thread of um, Jasper making some pretty hard choices that seem, um, I guess, on the surface trivial, but at the end of the day are choices that we would all make and maybe have to consider. Um, could you talk a little bit about the story of Faster? Hmm. Well, Jasper, the character Jasper, is um, kind of... She's trying to put herself through school. I don't know if it is um, super apparent, but in the opening scene, she's um, hasn't been able to enroll for her classes, and she's having a talk with an administrator who's just like, well, I don't know. <laughs> Can you ask your parents for money? And she's <laughs> just like, uh, see ya. So, um, so she's kind of not making it, and she's having to hustle a little bit. So she's doing some questionable things along the way. And that's why she takes the big 10 pound uh yeah. mystery package at the yes end. yeah and she um oh the the box the box the yeah because yeah, she's gonna get more money mm-hmm. for toting a box um 
so and I one of the my ideas I was playing with in the film was that the street level was sort of hell. Am I allowed to say hell? Oh yeah, you, right? can, okay. you can say a lot of things. <laughs> okay, um, so the street level was hell, and the office level was supposed to be like heaven that she couldn't access because she's mm-hmm. trapped in hell. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh um, wow, that is. <laughs> No, and that's totally there, because though. Because of the, yeah, I remember yeah. the receptionist gives her, like, the stink eye or whatever. Yeah. Like, you're not supposed to be here. You're yeah. all sweaty. The proverbial, exactly. uh, say, is it St. Peter that sits at this pearly gates? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I like that. I and like we have some, lot. like, angel imagery sprinkled throughout um, Just that just happens to exist in Chicago. Like, there's a statue of Winged Victory mm-hmm. um, and uh, a mosaic of angels flying and stuff like that so yeah very close very carefully chosen shots yes yeah yeah with the with the writing process um how how quickly (laughs) did you write it how uh how did you approach getting this screenplay done it took a while my first draft i think was like one page which is not really a movie yet (laughs) and um for a while i had her quitting and just like throwing her i wanted her to be really super pissed off and just like throw her walkie in the garbage can and be like i'm done kind of thing out yeah and then i just was like i don't know if i'm happy with that in terms of like what it says about her as a person and stuff so even though i kind of liked it in that punk rock kind of like nihilistic way (laughs) i was like all right i gotta think of something else but jasper's Um, not a quitter she's not a quitter yeah and uh so it took a while it took 10, 12, 15-ish revisions to get it where I felt ready to shoot. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something a lot of people don't realize about film is that almost any movie you watch has gone through a significant number of revisions. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very rarely ever just it doesn't just pour out and you know Yeah, a perfect not, form. Yeah. Even Aaron the great Aaron Sorkin does not just, <laughs> you know, spit out an episode of The West Wing on a whim. He's got to pass that by people and he's got to reconsider it himself. Um yep. how does it yeah, feel yeah. to look at something that's completely yours and have to kind of tear it down a little bit? It's good. It's it, while um, so I have a uh, my friend Eric Houts has edited. He works at Cutters and he's he edited faster and he also edited the Alley Cat. So and a lot of the pacing and stuff is really his. You know, kudos to him. Um, but I, I I'm really heavily involved in the editing process, sitting with him and um, let's try this, let's try that, trying things out and and whatnot. But you get to a point where it makes no sense any longer whatsoever. You're watching it and you're like, I just, I don't even, a complete blank. You don't you know? recognize the thing that you've written? Um, You know it so well that it has no meaning oh, okay. anymore. Yeah, it's just words remember, on a page or images yeah, on a screen. You can't remember what you're going for and whether or not it's working because you just know it too well. And so you got to take some space. And then it helps to have... Um, it always helps to watch it with other people. So have test screenings and bring other people in and you can sort of like feel how they react to stuff. It's really interesting. And did that have a bearing on the editing process then? Those test screenings? Yeah. Yeah. If people said like, well, I didn't understand this or this part was dragging or something. Um, So, you know, and then it's done and it's out in the world and it's like, woo, festivals and stuff. 
I mean, you've I mean, mentioned um, that it's played. It's played in it's a played f- quite a, a few places yeah, internationally. Yeah. Internationally, yeah. It played at the one of the first festivals it played at was the BFI London Film Festival. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. How did how did you manage to get it entered into that? Did you just like, excuse me, British Film Institute? I've got something you might enjoy. <laughs> Randomly, actually, it was. Um, I had taken it to Cannes, the short film corner, which is not part of the official festival. It's part mm-hmm. of the market. But so it was in the short film corner, and I was trying to find a distributor. And um, you can, if you're part of the short film corner, you can log into the database and see who's watched your film. And you can see, like, oh, this person favorited it. So oh. I would be in touch with those people. Hey, <laughs> notice you. Look at you checking out my film. Can we talk? And then... Uh, I just didn't hear anything back, which was disappointing. Um, so then after Can was done and people kind of like settled out, you know, get back to normal life. And then I would send a few follow-up emails and uh, what kind of wasn't getting anywhere. But I asked a friend of mine like, okay, these guys over at um, Shorts International said they, they favorited my film, but I can't get in touch with them. Who do you talk to over there? And they said like, oh, I, I work with Simon. So I sent it to Simon, and I was like, hey, I'm looking for a distributor. I heard you're looking for short films. Here's my movie. And he was like, hey, I really like that. Do you think I could program it in the London Film Festival, too? And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask my agent. <laughs> Vomits into a bag. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, and it seems like that's the way to be when you are um, starting out as a filmmaker, and or at least working on this level as a uh, filmmaker, is that you have to be your your own biggest fan. You really have it's to tough. put yourself out there. It, it can be tough. It's actually easier for me when something's done to keep throwing it out there. Like, Alley Cat is still screening, yeah. <laughs> even though it's like a couple years old now, but it's like... You know, I realized I had um, some Spanish subtitles made for a festival, and then like a year ago, and then I realized it really hasn't played anywhere mm-hmm. other than the U.S. or, you know, so I was like, it's time to send it out internationally. So I've been been playing a lot in like South America. Excellent. I think you mentioned cool. Ecuador, when Ecuador we, yeah. right? When we screened it, yes. or when you screened it at, yes, the, at yeah. Cinema Obscura. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have a question. So you created the Faster Short uh, as your thesis film mm-hmm. through the program at Columbia. What was it like? Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the process from going to from making a short film into making a feature, and then also you're out of school at that point, and you the onus of responsibility and the onus of even being able to create this feature length film, which I can only imagine is much more stressful yeah. and yeah. <laughs> and difficult. Could you tell us a little bit about that transition and just the difficulties or the yeah. just the things that you learned about? There that? were some dark days. There were some dark days because I was like out of school so like no more cushy student loan money mm-hmm. um and i was like teaching adjunct so i was getting paid peanuts and i was like doing transcriptions on the side for some company like video company and um i was trying to <laughs> i'd gotten a job in michigan teaching film like full-time tenure track and i so i knew i was leaving chicago and i was i remember like driving around with my friend hannah and saying like i really really want to make a feature film in chicago before i leave and she's like oh cool so you have a budget and i was like well <laughs> well no <laughs> like no oh, so you have a script and i was like well <laughs> oh, no well no <laughs> i'm gonna get on that um and uh it was really hard. I have the hardest time, like, staying not motivated, but, like, just not 
exquisitely depressed <laughs> during the creative process because it's like this is never gonna get made no one's ever gonna why am i bothering like um and i would uh i was really stuck also because i didn't want to remake faster but longer mm -hmm. i had kind of told that story and i wanted to do something else and you didn't and right you did not at i did all. not at That's all but it took a while to figure out what do I want to, what is it that I'm still, like I was still really attached to this character and I felt like I still have something to explore with her, but I was like, I'm not exactly sure where it's going. And then um, I had met Dylan Varekia. He's the DP for the Alley Cat at a film festival. Um, and he just was like, oh, yeah, let's shoot your movie whenever, whenever you get a budget. So I would run ideas past him and he was like a really big help to me when I was like in the depression of like, nothing's happening and he would be like okay okay why don't you go out and volunteer at one of these alley cats why don't you go out and meet some people and feel like you're doing stuff mm -hmm. and it was really good advice because i met more people i got more research done you know and it helped me stay feel like i was doing something instead of just like i'm typing <laughs> <laughs> moving beyond the typewriter yeah um what i really enjoyed was watching faster and then the alley cat back to back because not only is it a continuation of the character but also a a, deep, a, a little bit deeper exploration you, you get introduced in faster and then you get to immediately go deeper and um something i noticed was the theme of day and night uh faster yeah. taking place all during the day in the brightness of chicago with this fast-paced um editing and fast-paced storytelling and then we get to the alley cat and it's night and all the shots are beautiful in this nighttime. Things are shrouded, but you still have these city lights and uh, it, it really lent itself to this kind of darker exploration of this character. Um, so can you tell me a little bit? Did you plan on shooting it all at night? Oh, for sure. Yeah. You <laughs> knew that you were going to go nighttime with this one. Yeah. And I'm and I'm like kind of a morning person. And after a certain point my brain just shuts off so it was really hard like even like on, even the night before dylan was like are you sure this has to happen overnight i'm like yeah um but it really did because i wanted the um the morning to come like i wanted it all to take place over one night and then the end would be when the sun rises so it was very intentional um and uh i kind of liked that idea of going into that liminal space where things are kind of undefined and strange and you don't really know necessarily where she's going or why or what's happening but it seems kind of important to her Absolutely. um and uh and just sort of like the creatures of the night come out that she interacts with oh yeah <laughs> so it, it that was my idea um and some of those interactions are like actually things that have happened to me but i've just transposed them onto onto her for this film like not all at once obviously but um and and thinking about it is a little bit of a love letter to chicago and uh and thinking that sometimes random interactions can be really horrible but they can also be really beautiful mm -hmm. in terms of the love letter uh i think that definitely comes through with the with the setting in chicago um it was really fantastic to see a movie set in chicago where chicago was allowed to be itself like yeah. you saw places even like uh specifically that diner scene i've been past that <laughs> diner a million times and the minute i saw it, i was like i know where this is and places like that that aren't 
recognizable to everybody but recognizable to some and when people see it they know they're like this seems like a place where that people would know and people would actually go to um i think that really worked in the favor of giving um jasper a place to be in um can you tell me a little bit about picking those locations in chicago yeah some i had in mind from the very beginning like there's a very quick moment at the very end where um she's riding towards the lake and you go under one of the overpasses and there's a mosaic and i don't know if it's foster avenue anymore i can't remember but she goes under one of those um overpasses and i called it the sparkly thing because it's like mirrored some of the mosaic tiles are mirrors and Mm -hmm. um it was really important to me that she go through there on her way to the lakefront um the lakefront was you know like really important that she's looking back at the city um and then the diner and the park um are things that are very chicago and one of the other things i was really set on was there's like this little banana tree parking lot somewhere down here i'm forgetting the street it's on it's either like clark or dearborn or something it's random. It's completely random, but I really, really wanted it. Look and for the bananas. The bana- that's where they do the fruit stand um, station early on okay. in the Alley Cat. Right, right, right. And it's, it might be hard to make out, but there's like little plastic banana trees over the parking lot. Okay. Um, so some of them I, I knew already that I wanted, and some were um, just driving around looking for good places. Like, where's a really good place to have a um, one of these stations? that's accessible by bike that looks interesting and that is kind of a little different from the other stuff we've seen hopefully i realized i also really wanted to be down in the like lower whacker and lower lower and we we shot some scenes really close to here um across from the billy goat yeah I right noticed right that. yeah <laughs> It is crazy watching the, the specifically the yeah. alley cat. At <laughs> Going night. Like, oh, I know where that is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've yeah. been down this road. I've, uh, of course, I haven't ever seen nobody get on that road. <laughs> um, so going from the pace that you establish in Faster, it, it's bright. It's really, as Tom said, it's breakneck. And then you get to the alley cat, and it, it is it is nighttime. And the pace is still definitely there. The remnants of that, you know, the energy are there. But then due to some of the events mm-hmm. in the film, it really slows down and opens up the vulnerabilities of Jasper. So I guess in under like 90 minutes, I think, for both yep. of them, mm-hmm. I, f- I really feel like you fleshed out Jasper as a character. So I was curious, though, are, are there is there anything on the horizon for Jasper or are you? Hmm. I don't think so. I've got a bunch of other stuff I'm working on and she hasn't appeared in any of it, but not to say that she could never mm-hmm. reappear. I found her like to be a really interesting character because I each time I did a character biography for her and they were a little bit different between Faster and then um the Alley Cat. And of course also that some time has passed and some other things have happened in her life between those two films. So like things have gotten a little worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Hopefully. I would love I personally I would love to see Jasper again, but cool. when the time is right. Yeah. yeah. When you feel that Jasper yeah. is ready to return, Jasper shall return. Cool. Um now both of these uh films are available on Amazon Prime and Amazon yes. in general. Yes. Um and I think they're both on iTunes. 
still and the alley cat is also on youtube rentals so excellent so it's i wanted to know and i've asked a few of other filmmakers that we've spoken to on the show about um this kind of digital distribution model where uh you can widen your audience but under the fear of maybe getting buried a little bit under the deluge of content how how are your feelings what are your feelings on this kind of new frontier of digital distribution I think my dream has always been to have a theatrical release, which I didn't quite achieve this time. But um, it's, uh, I think I sort of fell into a little bit of a gap because I went with um, Gravitas Ventures. Mm -hmm. They're my distributor. And I really like them, but I came in, or they released the film at a time when the person I was working with was leaving the company. So I felt like there wasn't a whole lot of promotion around it that I was kind of sort of expecting. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to do yourself. Like, I try. Yeah. But There's I, only so I much you can do as a the, single person. Yeah. I might not be the best person to, like, do marketing. At right. So um, <laughs> They have professionals for this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, however, it's been interesting that, like, people find it, you know, not necessarily just people I know. But um, there, been, there's a life there for it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's nice to know that um, even even as someone who's watched it, you know, if someone was just like, oh, you know, what have you, what, you know, do you have any film recommendations? I was like, well, if you got fifteen minutes, you know, you got, <laughs> yeah. few, you got a little bit, watch faster, and they don't have to worry about like, well, am I going to be able to find it? Where is it? Do I have to rent it? It's all it's right it's, there. It's right there, and True. you can just you can just recommend that thing to everybody, but. Uh, yeah, I'm. I, I'm always curious about digital distribution. I mean, Connor, how much do you go on so you know streaming services and be like, I can't find anything, even though there's so much yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I find too that like some of the big services like Netflix, people are so into the series that they might not be looking. Like people are watching the stuff that everyone's talking about. They might not be out there looking for the the little stuff. Mm-hmm. But but it's there, people. It's, it's, there. it's there, and you need to find it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're making they're making it available to you. Yeah. Mari is making this available to you. We'll watch yes. it. Are watch there it. a lot of TV shows? Yes. Do you have to yes. watch them all? Yes. <laughs> 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 but you got an extra 60 minutes to watch the Alley Cat. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh what's coming up on the horizon just in general for you? Well, I have um several feature films in development that I would like to get made and I'm sort of trying not to be too chaotic about it but working on them all <laughs> and seeing which one you know sticks sounds inherent so a little chaos. yeah because one of well one of them so and interestingly too they're they're not about bicycles but they're all connected to travel mm. in a way so um one of them that seems like it might be the the most accessible ready to go in a way sans budget um is a, a, a really dark road trip film. It's like a psychological horror film, and the the lead character is in her forties, and she's off on this road trip by herself in a camper. Like, woo, you go, girl. Um, <laughs> I'm listening. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but then there's like a very dark side, which I won't talk about, because um, I don't know how much to 
reveal or not reveal. Yeah, we just can, tell we, us what you can. You know. Yeah, you can get, <clears throat> feel free to keep the secret. You, you got, you got, you already have us enticed because cool. one, you're making a movie. All right, cool. <laughs> we want to watch it, so uh, you can keep that in the puzzle box. You can wait. Yeah, I'll just say that she's so she's on this road trip cross country in her mini bago, and like her social media is impeccable. Like doing yoga in front of the natural vistas and stuff like that and has a big following but her interior life is like whoa something else yeah Ooh. whoa crumbling <laughs> and then um i have another film that was written by a friend of mine gisela Faggi, about it's called the infected and it's about um an eritrean refugee refugee pardon me who lands in italy and she's trying to make her way to sweden to her family and so it's by foot, it's by bus, it's by train, you know, it's however she can get there. Um, and she just meets with a lot of hardship along the way. And um, that is compounded by a new virus that's infecting specifically the refugees. It starts in a refugee camp, but now it's spreading. So they face not only the the usual kind of go home get out of our country right. kind of feeling but now actual fear and and like real hatred of oh like yeah they so it's be killed it starts at the outset of the infection that's interesting yes. yeah because i feel like most movies deal with that after it's given it, it's been given some chance to spread out no it's like just sort of just happening it's happening. interesting it's happening. i like that i like that a lot thank you then i have uh my my road trip through france mm-hmm. um it's Your like experimental a film. experimental <laughs> film, essay, <Where> you are. <laughs> experimental doc, essay film slash essay film, which is all about driving and um, not all. Some of the footage I've shot in Nashville, which is where I'm from, and um, there, I, there's more I need to shoot in Chicago and around the area. And I, I'm not exactly sure how it's going to come together. I have ideas, but it's um, it's going to be a a process editing recording stuff and seeing how how it goes how it flows um and then i also have a rom trage of rom trage rom trage it's like a romantic comedy but it ends very poorly nice <laughs> that's fun to say finally <laughs> yeah um and that one's like sort of like the most hollywood i guess of the films but i ha- i am in the very beginning stages of mm-hmm. right developing so i'm just at the outline stage for that one but all right so you have four it. projects four. coming up mm-hmm. four top class <laughs> a plus projects i i very excited um i just love looking towards the future especially when it's um uh, you know a filmmaker who has already done great stuff and Aww. we just want to see what comes we just want to see what comes next so promise promise cool. you will let us know i will when things start happening because we want to talk about it we want to let you know you. when i'm begging for money Maybe i should <laughs> beg for money now that's all that's the only thing that stands between me and making another film well yeah and that's <laughs> that's always what it is is yeah. um it's budget and it's yep. it's hard to keep that going at the at the rate you need to because as much as filmmaking has been democratized and it's easier than ever but there's still that gate there of you need to have a budget you know people want to get paid to do their do their art and um while that is you know that's totally just as much as you should be paid to do your art it's difficult to get that all together so best of luck truly to um i'll probably do a kickstarter soon-ish boom Boom. And she will let us know when that goes up, and we will share that with all of you here on No Coast Cinema. Um, 
Mari, thank you so much for coming on the program. Writer, director, Mari Ulrich. Is there anywhere we can follow you on social media where listeners can come and find your work? Um, the Alley Cat Film has a website. Um, and my production company is called Econoprod, which we're also on Facebook, as in economical production. Mm. <laughs> it's got to give me, I wish I had a bell. <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Mari. We will uh, we'll talk to you soon. Stay up to date with that. Uh, we're going to be back in just a bit here on No Coast Cinema. I'm Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And uh, there's plenty more show coming, so stick around. Welcome back, everybody. NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. Plus. Uh, thank you so much to Mari Ulrich for sitting down with Connor and I. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. I really love Mari. Um, so glad that we managed to get to see those films at uh, Cinema Obscura, run by our good friend John Davies. Shout out to John. Shout out to John. And um, we hope that you will check it out, too. Remember that uh, you can watch both Faster and The Alley Cat over on Amazon. Uh, You can do a regular rental. Or if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch them as part of your Amazon Prime subscription, which is totally awesome. Fantastic. And uh, shout out to streaming services everywhere. Unless you're a writer for Newsweek. (laughs) Unless you're Zachary uh Schoenfeld. Schoenfeld. Zachary Schoenfeld. The arbiter of destruction. <laughs> the arbiter of online streaming curation. <laughs> okay. So there is this Newsweek article that both Connor and I found very interesting. Uh this is from September fifteenth. And um the title is Netflix Streaming Video and the Slow Death of the Classic Film. Uh, basically, what Mr. Schoenfeld argues here is that Netflix and most streaming services, for that matter, have a significant lack of what we would consider classic film. So he defines this as movies before 1960. He uses the uh, the anecdote of the release of Psycho in 1960 as his starting point. Um, and he and does make an interesting point. He does. He does. Uh, there is not a lot of film on Netflix that predates 1960. Uh, and I would say 1960 is the year that, like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of pop culture movies really started there like psycho is is more than just a film classic it's like a pop culture icon like the shower scene you know dressing up as the like they made bates motel they made an entire series about it so it uh i think it is an interesting starting point for that however i i would kind of want to argue against what zachary is saying here in terms of classic films like uh, do you do you watch a lot of classic films on Netflix? Not on Netflix. No, I d- the thing about Netflix is I'm not going to go there for old films. There are no. streaming services out there which curate it much better than Netflix ever could, and films like that d- shouldn't have to w- be put into competition with things like Ozarks or you know Netflix original series. Alfred Hitchcock's mm-hmm. Psycho should not be 
you know, I, I just don't think that it needs to be buried in all of the stuff that Netflix has on the wreck <laughs> that Netflix has there. Well, what I think, I think what he's trying to get at is that like, maybe it should like maybe Netflix can up their selection if they add a little bit more classic movies. But you know, as he mentions in his own article, there's the question of, uh, you know, rights, of copyright and you need to pay to have those streaming rights and frankly those can be expensive yeah absolutely um we'd be wrong to say that you can just get those and i think he makes that concession that um you need to you need to pay for those um he quotes he quotes someone here uh i believe they're reading of the market and (laughs) you can tell they're talking to a (laughs) a classic film person because they use a word like vicissitudes i don't vicissitudes i don't really know um acquiring materials from the studio's film libraries are key factors meaning uh basically getting the rights for these films is a little bit difficult and netflix has determined for them for their business and for the audience that they're not really that interested in having those classic films which on a greater level is a little disappointing. You meet a lot of people. I've spoken to people that say they will not watch any movies made before like 1990. Really? Yeah. They're just like, no, Looks they're old. old and they're stupid. Oh, wow. Okay. Like they're, they don't have CGI and shit, which is weird. Well, that's one end. Uh, that's one end of the spectrum. And then it seems as though Sean Feld is on the other end. Where yeah. He's, he's saying, like, I want to watch all this. Yeah. I want... I've scrolled through Netflix a hundred times. I see Moana and an American Tale on here, but where's the Kurosawa? It's like, <laughs> come on. And and to that point, there is Kurosawa on Netflix. I actually have right in front of me, uh, if you go to the Classic Movies tab, which is like, if you use the Genres tab, Classic Movies is on there. And there's a fair amount of what we would consider classics. Now, they're not all from before 1960, but I guess you would, I mean, you would call them classics. Uh, to for Kurosawa, they've got Kagamusha, which is a fantastic film. One of his later films. It's not you know Sanjuro. It's not Seven Samurai, but it's there. Uh, Sunset Boulevard, classic, stone cold classic. I'm ready for my close up, Mister Deville. Like <laughs> st- you got Metropolis, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, one of the most landmark moments in film history. Um, the original The Fly. Now it does get into stuff like Patton which is from the 70s, Grease, Jaws, uh, The Shining, Young Frankenstein. But uh, those count, Absolutely. I think. I mean, they're they're more recent, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, I'm sorry they don't have Chaplin. They don't have any they, – they don't have City Lights. They don't have, you know, any of those classic – they don't have Buster Keaton. They don't have Spartacus, you know. I don't know what to tell you. It's those sort of like expensive. It's sort of like – square peg round hole kind of a situation because right he's looking at this and he's like why he's looking at this square hole and he's like why aren't you a circle it seems as though he is trying to hold netflix to a standard that maybe their business model has never been that maybe that's just never been a part of their goal yeah they are they are all about uh binge bit i feel like they've even moved on realistically from movies being the main thing for them oh yeah it really they it's all about streaming series it's all about bingeable tv you know they really uh kicked off a lot of that with house of cards 
And House of Cards was massive. I think a lot of people forget now how massive House of Cards was when that first came out. And they even brought, I mean, David Fincher was involved with that. Like, mm-hmm. um, television, like, streaming series has, has become streaming's bread and butter because it keeps people hooked, keeps people hardcore hooked. Movies are nice to have, but streaming services are really not about the movies right now and the movies that they do have they want to keep it current and want to keep them like super popular do i necessarily agree with that i mean it's what you make of it it would be nice if netflix was this sort of utopian all-in-one streaming service where it offered all of these classic films but if you if that's something that you really care about and something that you are you know looking for in your in your media stream there are sites out there. I know, Tom, that yeah. you use plenty of things that offer just that. Yeah. Um, we I pay for uh, Filmstruck, which is run by the Criterion Collection and Turner Classic Movies. And even Turner Classic Movies, I think, might have another thing that's just for Turner. And um, I get tons of classic movies. And, yes, it's extra. Like, you're paying, yeah, you're paying an extra 8 to $10 a month to get these classic movies but like you can't expect one streaming service for the for realistically the insane price of ten dollars a month you get literally hundreds of thousands of hours of content i'm sorry that it doesn't have everything um one of the sadder moments for me i know hulu used to have exclusive access to the criterion collection a selected number of titles but you know the criterion collection nonetheless and they had a lot of classic films that changed when um criterion wanted to strike out and do their own kind of niche streaming service but um you can go on hulu you can still watch a lot of classic stuff mostly television shows um you've got the twilight zone you've got star trek uh, both the next gen, all actually, all every type of Star Trek there is, the best kind of Treks, the Star Treks. Um, they've got the Indiana Jones films, which I know Netflix wishes they could have, honestly. But uh, you know, I feel like this is just a circular thing. At the end of the day, you can criticize the selection all you want, but you're getting so much content for such a little price. There's only so much stuff that they can bring on, and only and it's only so much stuff that uh, studios are willing to license out. As you saw with Disney, they're like, "Oh, we want a slice of the streaming pie. Why would we give you all this business when we can get it for ourselves?" Yeah, and they are going to be moving forward with that in the next couple of years. Yeah, unfortunate, but <clears throat> you know, it's I, I still buy shit. I still buy hard hard copies of things for exactly this reason. I've I've has I've had to uh justify this to some people where they're just like, Well, why don't you just rent it or why don't you just like, you know, watch stream it or something like that? And I'm like, Well, because I like, you know, one of them is just like kind of the fetish property of it where it's just like I like to have it, I like having the physical copy. But it also means that I have an, an I have unstoppable access to this as long as i have my blu-ray player and a television i can watch this movie as many times as i want it's a comforting feeling yeah and it's not limited to my internet connection i can just play it but i'm a little bit of uh of an old fogey when it comes to these sorts of things i like to have the physical media that's tom the collector the collector that's why they call him the collector yeah for those of you who have seen The Collector, I am The Collector. Oh. I killed those teens. <laughs> <laughs> On air confession. Yes. Uh, 
I do want to cap it off here with just a quick little quick little discussion. You don't of, want to scream um, into the void anymore? No. Uh, <laughs> oh, we're not doing I've had that. My, I've had my daily allotment of screaming into the void. Oh, okay. I know. We, we can do a little bit later. All well, right. I got to recharge and I got to kind of like recenter myself looking into the dark void of uh, nothingness. And um, that is Netflix's that is Netflix. streaming curation. <laughs> um, so we want to just touch on some of the things that we've been streaming and watching and trying to catch up on. Um, Connor, what have you been watching? So. Uh, South Park is back, and so is yep. Nathan for you. I've been watching a decent amount of Comedy Central lately, I suppose. Um, I also rewatched Baby Driver, which I have. It's definitely colored my opinion of the movie. Yeah, how has it changed? I so I'm a huge Edgar Wright fan. I am a big fan of the uh, brand of comedy that he has, but I also am sort of seeing these enduring themes in his movies, which I don't. I don't think are going to age well, and I particularly with with me with me. I don't know. It's there's this sort of male driven aspect to his movies. Obviously, I mean, there sure. a lot of them are buddy movies, but in Baby Driver specifically, we talked about this a little bit in previous episodes. But the female character gets absolutely sidelined, and having noticed that in Baby Driver, I go back to the other movies, and it's just hard for me to not see it in the other movies as well. Yeah, just the way that he places the emphasis on the male hero is strange to me. Yeah, luck- luckily for me, I would say Shaun of the Dead. Th- I think absolutely a lot of his movies um, do have that inherent super male mentality, and it. I think it works best. My favorite one, my favorite movie he's ever made is Hot Fuzz, because it plays against these male stereotypes and explores male relationships in in a fun way it's not about like men be men being like you know over women i guess it's just like okay we're gonna look at male relationships yeah like but you know it's it's a subtle dig at the buddy cop movie and and it's got a lot of heart to it um sean of the dead luckily is clever enough to get around a little bit of its female character problems like Liz as a character in Shaun of the Dead. It really, I mean, she's, she's got some good bits. Oh yeah. And, um, I think, th- I think there's more of an interesting dynamic there, which is sad to see it not in baby driver. Cause we know that he knows how to write relationships with, um, Sean and Liz in in uh, Shaun of the Dead, it's complicated. It's a complicated relationship, and she dumps him. Like she's just like, I'm not going to put up with you being a man child. And like you see growth in him, and see how the relationship grows. And there's also his issues with his mom and his stepdad. So it feels like you're watching a real person. Baby Driver, as you said, uh, female character is sidelined, and she is just an object. Yeah. There's nothing I to knew be not- protected and ferried around. Exactly. The, I knew nothing about um that character no. by the end of it. I can't even remember. Wasn't it uh it's it starts with a D. Her name? Yeah. Deborah. Deborah, that's it because of the Beck song. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Deborah. And isn't that sad that like I'm not even think like what's what's her name? I was She's watching just- it with some people and they were just like, How many times did they meet? three times yeah and now all of a sudden he's like <laughs> killing a john ham for her killing a john ham killing a whole a, john ham i'm gonna kill that ham that john ham <laughs> for mm. debbie for debbie debs we're coming i'm coming to get literal i'm coming to get you barbara yeah it's um i think i think edgar wright maybe needs to take a look at how he's writing his characters 
Um, that does. That's not to say that we don't like Baby Driver. No, I still I, like Baby Driver. It's just like it's a great action movie. Yeah. It's just like it's not. Um, it could go a little bit further. It could have just been better. It could have been. It goes from being a good action movie. It could have been a great action movie. Yes. Um, if they had just really taken a little bit more time explaining the characters, you know, instead of uh focusing so much on the action. But you know, maybe if they didn't focus so much on the action, the set pieces wouldn't be so good. So that's interesting to think about. Baby yeah. Driver, will it hold up? I don't know. Um, I myself have been trying to <laughs> So uh I am I've never really been a huge fan of DC's um on screen presence, DC comics. Um in terms of their cinematic universe or I mean, I I I like the Dark Knight trilogy. I think those are really good, but obviously they've been kind of striking out a lot save for Wonder Woman. Um their animated films have always been really good. They've had a strangely great animated presence compared to everything else they've done. Yes. But uh I know that they have for a long time had been doing um live action series on the CW. <laughs> And uh, I recently decided on the recommendation of my friend Luke to try and get into Arrow and The Flash. Okay. Which I just watched the pilot of both. And I definitely came out on the side of Arrow. Arrow debuted in 2012. Yeah. And I'm just going, I'm really catching up here. There's five seasons of it. Flash is three seasons in, I think. Okay. Um, So I'm really playing catch up here. And I definitely came out on the side of Arrow first because it was more cohesive of a pilot. I get the Flash pilot, you know, pardon the pun, was a little bit fast paced for me. Mm. It moved on a little bit too quickly and I felt smoothed over a lot of things. But luckily, talking to Luke, he explained to me that um, Flash got like a weird backdoor pilot in season two of Arrow, which like sets a lot of things up that the pilot the actual pilot for the flash kind of just smooths over because they assume that you know this or maybe they tried to strike a balance of like casual viewer and people who have already seen arrow so um i i'm surprised though i'm surprised at how much i enjoyed both of them they're both very i don't know typical tv shows though they're very traditional in their sense of humor there's nothing really that they're not like subversive or anything they're not particularly well like directed relatively lighthearted, and it's yeah. compared to their big like ten poles yeah arrow is like definitely the it's it's definitely playing off the whole dark knight thing they're just oh Vigilante. oliver queen yeah he's got a past man <laughs> he's got a past he's got a backstory it's gonna, tragic it's tragic <laughs> But, uh, and he kills people. He kills the f out of people. <laughs> like, he's, he's good at it. Yeah, he shoots the shit out of people with those arrows. And it's pretty cool. Like, there's some pretty great action set pieces. Um, Flash is definitely the least, the less grounded of the two because, you know, we're talking about all, you know, Green Arrow doesn't have like superpowers. He's just really good at shooting people with arrows. <laughs> he's just really good at murder. A la uh, being stranded on a deserted island yeah for yeah months. which they don't not just months years, years. Oh, he's yeah. there for five years with no real indication that he would have the survival skills although they i guess they do tease deathstroke and i'm guessing that that is uh the explanation of how he survived is like deathstroke is an assassin in the dc universe and he's like i'm gonna teach you how to kill this mother 
squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, All right. Side note, uh, Deadpool is actually a parody of um, Deathstroke. Really? Yeah. Is that how he started? Yeah, because uh, what's it? Deathstroke's real name is Slade Wilson. No way. And D- Deadpool is Wade Wilson. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that trivia aside, they're interesting. I think uh, if you're into superheroes, they're worth trying to get into. But they're not like cool. You need to kind of put cool out of your mind and just be willing to be entertained. And I think you'll enjoy them. Is it good TV, Tom? Is it good TV? I don't really know what good TV is anymore because <laughs> let's. There are so many shows to watch. I'm not, you know, even supposedly good TV is no longer really, you know, has done some bad TV. Like Game of Thrones, I would say is generally like great TV. Yeah. That's great television. It elevates the form, but this past season has been like, eh. Yeah. I, I liked it. I was entertained by it, and I feel like they did a lot, made a lot of those choices um, to you know just kind of move the story along they're like we need to set everything up yeah. for this final season of just just a gangbang of yeah. just <laughs> so many stories well, finally ga- coming together game of thrones is kind of crazy a, a crazy example to think about because th- it seems like it's too big to fail at this point and it's oh, yeah. not going to stop being this extravagant spectacle Exactly. But the writing is only going to keep suffering, I think. Yeah, they really have painted themselves into a corner of sorts of like, they need to really pay off a lot of stuff. Um, And that's not to say that George R. R. Martin definitely is not afraid to not pay off a character. He'll set up a character and then just do nothing with it. Like, that's it. Like, he'll just introduce a character you think that maybe they'll be important later. Nope. Which is fine. I mean, there's no problem with that. I think it's an interesting way of storytelling. But I think to Game of Thrones credit, like, seriously, name a show since Game of Thrones that really captured the zeitgeist. That was really centerpiece television. Maybe Breaking Bad. Yeah. All right. Any closing thoughts, Connor? I just watched Jaws and uh, Steven Spielberg kills off a kid. Oh, yeah. And that will never not be jarring. No. And that is something that I just wanted to share with you. Jaws is still one of those movies. It gets me every time. I get enthralled. I'm enthralled by Jaws every time I watch it. Yeah. It's in my top 10. It's in my top 10 greatest movies ever made. Quinn is just such an entertaining (laughs) madman. He's got black eyes. I got like a doll's eyes. (laughs) Another thing about a shock. 40 men go in. How many? Wait. What's the math? (laughs) Wait, hold on. What's the math? Six. It, how many times he was way more self-assured than this tom <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> telling the true story of the uh uss philadelphia indianapolis indianapolis i i think there needs to be a cut of jaws where as he's telling the story it we suddenly get to watch 50, all, all of it, uss indianapolis starring nick cage yes. just cut that in and then it comes back to jaws once that's done and then you get to watch the rest of jaws um wow. spielberg let us know we'll do we'll down, we're down we know how to use iMovie yeah you just give us those prints babe give us the prints all right thank you so much everybody for joining us for another episode of no coast cinema uh we're gonna be back next week it's gonna be great we love you all uh don't forget go on to apple podcasts if you like the show please give us a rating 
subscribe. It helps everybody uh, find the show on Apple Podcasts. Uh, or you can download the WGM Plus app. Fantastic app. And it's not just for us. You can catch so many great shows here on WGM Plus. Uh, you just got to find it. They got Rebel Force Radio, one of the best Star Wars podcasts out there. You got Sound Sessions, fantastic music podcast. They talk to a lot of great musicians. I know they, uh, Mike Heideman, one of the hosts, was recently at Riot Fest. So definitely follow up with them. And you can also find us on WGNRadio.com. And if you're on social media, please give us a like over at Facebook.com slash Podcast or follow us on Twitter at NoCoCinema. Uh, thank you, Connor. Thank you, Tom. Uh, this has been NoCo Cinema, your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. We will see you next week. Yeah, he shoots the shit out of people with those arrows, and it's pretty cool.